Good morning. Contrary to what you have perhaps seen and heard, I do still preach here. I do still have a job and employed at Rockwall Presbyterian Church. It has been a really strange uh, month. For us, it's been busy, and we've had to adopt or adapt in a lot of different ways, and I spent all of last week uh, in bed uh, in my jammies with uh, sickness. So, um, so it is good to be back with you this morning and to feel um, like that should probably be the last unexpected thing for t- the rest of 2022, right? <laughs> I think we've, we've arrived, and we are uh, good to go. Um, today, we are going to finish out our little whistle-stop tour of the book of Ephesians in the last chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, where Paul talks about a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. When I was in college, I heard a story about a journalist who wrote an article on the priest that performed the exorcism on the young child that inspired the movie The Exorcist. Now, Hollywood had, a, uh, had their dose of fun with that story, added a little bit of head spinning and some projectile green vomit and all of that, but it was actually a story that did, in fact, work its way into popular culture and captivated a, a wide audience. And this journalist wanted to learn more about this priest who'd become this kind of enigma to the masses who'd stepped into this really dark situation. The priest was a quiet man, kept to himself. He taught at a school. And the journalist did this story by essentially following the priest around all day. And so the priest, at certain points in his day, would have to walk around the campus from one building to the next. And he said, every now and then, At certain times, the elementary school boys would see the priest. They'd run up. They'd surround him. And they'd start making faces at him. They'd act like little demons. And they'd tease him and kind of mock the whole thing. And the journalist said that the priest's response was always the exact same. He'd just keep walking forward with his head down and he'd quietly say, Boys, 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 the devil's real. Let's start with an admission this morning that perhaps we don't really live with the notion that our lives are dramatically influenced by a spiritual battle that's being waged around us. Oftentimes, it's easy to approach the supernatural just like these elementary school boys. It's something that's far easier to mock than to take seriously. Perhaps part of that is just due to the simple fact that the supernatural is trivialized in our culture. You know, it's a a movie genre that can be your source of entertainment on a Friday night for 10 bucks, where the goal of supernatural forces is to lure young, attractive college students to a haunted cabin in the woods and torment them forever. Or maybe we just simply disregard it because we know in the back of our minds, we know certain people that see supernatural significance in every event. 
where every inconvenience is demonic oppression. It's like, no, your car is not possessed by a demon. It's out of gas. (laughs) True story. (laughs) So really, when was the last time you thought about the supernatural? Today, Paul invites us to revisit the topic and to be reawakened to the reality of our world. And sometimes being awakened to that reality can be a very startling thing. A few years ago on one of our trips to India, I vividly remember a conversation I had with Ananth, who is our national partner there and a dear brother to me. And we had just arrived and we'd gotten in the van at the airport. And we immediately did what we always did. We started up a conversation to get caught up. So I asked him, what's going on in the deep forest? How are the people? What are their needs? What are they praying for? And another told me all sorts of different things, as he usually does. But then he told me about one woman in particular that had recently come up to him. And she said, would you please pray for my daughter? I wake up at night, and she's destroying things in the hut. She's banging pots and pans and pulling things off shelves and destroying things and breaking things and creating all sorts of just uncontrollable chaos. Would you please pray for her? And I remember hearing that, and I said, that sounds really strange. Does her daughter suffer from some form of mental illness? And Anath goes, oh no, no, it's nothing like that. She's asking for her daughter to be delivered from evil spirits because her daughter is only nine months old. Nine months. She can't walk during the day, but she walks at night. I will never forget the look on my wife's face the first time I told her that story. That's a story that will give you chills because that is a different kind of power. And why is it so startling? It's because if that story is true, then it forces you to change how you understand the world. And this is what Paul wants us to see. That the reality of the principalities and powers of this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, those things impose themselves on your worldview and they situate your life on the front lines of a profound spiritual battle. And it's here at the end of the book of Ephesians that Paul is saying the same thing to an incredulous church. Boys, boys, boys. The devil's real. If you remember, at the beginning of Ephesians, Mark talked and preached on predestination. And we said, just simply, just let's look at that in its simplest form, which means that God has a plan for your life. But then here at the end of Ephesians, Paul says to be strong in the Lord and to withstand the schemes of the devil. Why does he say that? It's because the devil has a plan for your life too. You have an enemy that wants to attack you 
wants to attack your family, wants to attack your children, wants to attack your church. And if you think to yourself, well, God's plans will overcome the plans of the devil. Well, that's true. But if you allow that to make you fall into a spiritual complacency, my friend, you'll be a casualty. Like a soldier trying to enjoy a quiet picnic on a battlefield. So how can this challenge us this morning? Paul urges us to recognize and live in light of this spiritual battle that's being waged around us. So how does he teach us to adopt this mindset? What does this look like to live in this reality? Well, the first thing he says is that we have to know who our enemy is. We have to know who our real enemy is. So look at verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I think we need to hear this and take what God is teaching us through Paul very, very seriously. Because do you hear the church talk like that these days? You hear the church saying that we wrestle against the cosmic powers of darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Does the church know who its real enemy is? Now, just to be up front, I'm going to be very direct. Because I do believe that the church has completely lost sight of who our real enemy is and the real battle that we're supposed to be fighting. Because when we lose sight of who our real enemy is, then we will inevitably flip verse 12. And we will act as though it says, we wrestle not against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. We wrestle not against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. No, we wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against Democrats. We wrestle against liberals. We wrestle against the LGBTQ community. We wrestle against the woke mob. We wrestle against cultural progressive progressives. That's the real enemy attack. Now, I'm not saying that those do not represent important issues that deserve the attention of the church. Of course they do. Nor am I saying that we should simply lay aside our differences and embrace some form of passivity. Not at all. But I am saying that they are not our enemy. Those people, those communities, are not our enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And in large part, the church has made our enemies flesh and blood. 
And whenever that happens, then the war will take place on the battlegrounds of elections and politics and power and influence and culture wars and ideologies. And whenever that happens, the news pundits become our prophets, politicians become our priests, presidents become our messiahs. The goal becomes about changing culture instead of proclaiming a crucified savior because do any of them speak like your king? To pray for those who persecute you, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you. Do we really know who our enemy is? And do we really know how the battle is fought? A while back, I saw where a prominent evangelical leader had sent out a nationwide call to prayer. It was sent out through email and through social media, an open letter calling the church to pray in these dire times. And the reason for this call to prayer was because of a piece of legislation that was about to be passed through Congress with the typical rhetoric of this being the most important issue of our times. Now, in no way whatsoever that I even remotely agree with this piece of legislation. And it certainly was a very important vote. and certainly was worthy of the attention of the church. Nor was it wrong that he called for prayer on the issue. But at the same time, it's like, really? Really? This is what makes us finally sound the alarm. This is what deserves a rallying call to prayer is a piece of legislation. Because where are the calls for prayer about the fact that almost 8,000 churches close their doors each year? Where are the calls for prayer about the fact that a third of the church has left in the last two years and isn't coming back? Where are the calls for prayer about the fact that men in their 30s and 40s are the age group that's most rapidly leaving the church? And so from where will our future leaders come? Are these issues not worthy of prayer? Do we really understand who our enemy is? And do we really understand the battle that we are in? Because what will it take and how much has to be lost for the church to begin to reconsider its priorities and start asking deeper questions? Like, why is it that over the last 40 years, as the church has gained more political power and influence, has the church only gotten smaller? Has engaging in endless culture wars actually produced any converts or filled any pews? And the church has engaged those things under the pretense that it's standing for biblical values and biblical truth. But at some point, that has to be called into serious question. Because are we really doing that? Are we really doing that when only 17% of self-professed Christians even know what the Great Commission is? Almost Half of self-professed Christians believe that Jesus was created at his birth. Almost half the church believes in something that was deemed a heresy 1,700 years ago. Or what about the fact that 52% of American Christians believe that salvation has to be earned by doing good works? And what about the fact that only one-third of professing Christians 
believe that simply confessing your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ will give them eternal life. So in light of all of that, we really have to ask, what biblical truth are we actually protecting? What biblical values are we really standing for? What do you think those statistics are going to look like in 10 years? What type of church will be handed off to our children? If we define our enemies as flesh and blood, then the devil will always convince us that our problem is out there and we'll be blinded to his schemes. We'll always be thinking that the problem is out there. It's those people. It's that issue while our own house burns. Because it's not enough to shout that marriage is between a man and a woman when Islam believes the exact same thing. It's not enough to fight for the sanctity of marriage while we allow our own to exist in a cold coexistence. It's not enough to cry about education in our schools if we don't educate our children on the faith. It's not enough to condemn alternative sexuality while we overlook our own lustful addictions and we turn a blind eye to abuse in the church amongst the most vulnerable. Do we really understand who our enemy is and do we really understand the battle that we're in? I want us to consider all of this because understanding our enemy and the battle that we are in is for a very important reason. Because if we think that our enemy is flesh and blood, then we fundamentally cannot participate in the mission of God. Why? Because it means that we do not understand the gospel. Full stop. Think about it this way. Why does Paul say that our enemy is not flesh and blood? It's because what he's already told us in Ephesians chapter 2. Where he says that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. In Christ, all distinctions and dividing lines have been destroyed. There's no male or female. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no Greek or barbarian, slave, Scythian or free. All of those dividing lines have been destroyed in the full work of Jesus Christ. Which means that no earthly distinction can cut one off from the free gift of God's grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which means that now there's only one dividing line that matters and there's only one dividing line that's left in this world. It's whether or not you are in Christ. It's whether or not you are in the one who went to his enemies, made them his family, It's whether or not you're in the one that Ephesians 2.17 says he came preaching peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. It doesn't matter how the world classifies you. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are or were. Christ came to break down those walls of hostility. Why? So that all flesh and all blood may be found in him and have peace with God. So if we make flesh and blood our enemy, then we will be busy doing what? We'll be busy putting those walls of hostility right back up based on our preferences, our priorities, and our opinions instead of laying hold of the very power that tears them down through the gospel of peace. And that, my friends, is how you fall headfirst into the schemes of the devil. Because the name devil, after all, means divider. 
And don't get me wrong. Do not get me wrong. None of this means we can't have strong differences with the surrounding world. This doesn't mean that we can't disagree. But if we make them our enemies and we allow those disagreements to create hostility in our heart and hatred towards them, then we can rest assured that the gospel disagrees with us. Because we lay aside the call of Christ and they become recipients of our hate and contempt instead of seeing them as those who need the divine intervention of the mercy and grace of God. They need a light that shines in the darkness. They need the same thing to have happen to them that happened to you. Because at the same time, when we think that our enemy is flesh and blood, we lose sight of ourselves and we lose sight of who the gospel says that we were. And he reminds us over and over again, Paul in Ephesians 2 reminds us of who we once were. He says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You once followed the course of this world. You once followed the prince of the power of the air. You were once cut off from Christ and separated from his covenant promises. But now, by his grace, you are in Christ. Because he came to you when, he, when you were his enemy. And he made you his family. So if we think our enemy is flesh and blood, then we fundamentally cannot participate in the mission of God because we don't understand like the gospel the way that we think we do. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because this Ephesian church didn't just receive this letter, they also received another letter decades later from Jesus. He wrote it to the same Ephesian church through John in Revelation 2. And Jesus confronts them about their lack of evangelistic love. They turned inward upon themselves and they stopped going out into the world and embodying that love for the world so that the world might be saved. And Jesus gave them as harsh of a warning as he possibly could. He said, if you don't repent, then I will remove your lampstand. What does that mean? It means I will remove your church. I will remove you from my presence. So as we look around at all that's happening in the church, perhaps Jesus gives us our answer right there because the mission of God is not negotiable which means we had better understand who our true enemy is and the battle that we're called to fight or why else should we expect to exist and in order for the church to reclaim the mission of God in our day then we need to be reminded that the mission of God is not about grasping at earthly power it's about laying hold of heavenly power we need to remember that we're not called to go out and to change culture. We're called to carry a cross. We're not empowered by the Spirit to sit back and point a judgmental finger, but to open our hands to the world the way Christ opened his to us. We're not called to keep an evil world out. We are called to go out to an evil world. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers of this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil that deceive this world with lies and trap it in darkness. And to go up against that enemy, Paul says you had better be dressed in the full armor of God, holding fast to the whole truth of the gospel, walking in righteous obedience, 
energized by a readiness of faith and armed with the word of God to be ready to take it into the world for the world, not against it. And Paul gets this language of armor from the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, there's these little moments whenever the Bible talks about God as the divine warrior. And it begins in the book of Exodus at the Red Sea and throughout the rest of the Bible, you see these moments where God would dress himself for battle and he would rise up against evil in this world on behalf of his people. But in that passage read to you earlier today by Jeremy, it comes from Isaiah 59. And in Isaiah 59, that theme of the divine warrior takes a little bit of a turn because it says that God dresses as the divine warrior He puts on his armor to go up against Israel because they had forsaken his mission. They had forsaken his purposes. Instead of being a light to the nations, they wanted to be like the nations. They wanted the power of the nations, so they did what the nations did. They thought like the nations thought. They fought like the nations fought, and they were cut off because God's mission is not negotiable. And so here in Ephesians 6, when Paul says for us to put on the full armor of God, what's he saying? He's saying that in Christ, we, as the church, can once again join the divine warrior in his mission. It's a call to battle, to dress as the divine warrior and be clothed in the power of God. But how do we do that? Verse 18 says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel and declare it boldly. You see this theme that Paul presents to us in that verse how we engage in this spiritual battle and how we participate in the mission of God, it's through prayer. This is Paul calling the church to prayer. In every time and in every place to join the divine warrior and his mission and his battle. And why prayer? It's because prayer is the act of recognition that our battle is a spiritual battle and not a physical one. It's fought in the heavenly places and not against flesh and blood. Prayer is the act of recognition that we don't need earthly power. We need the power of God. Prayer is the act of recognition that we need divine intervention. Prayer is how we stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So how does he teach us to pray? Well, if you look closely at what he says, he teaches us this. If we want to be a church that participates in the mission of God, then we have to learn to pray for lives to change other than our own. We have to learn to pray for others and not just ourselves. We have to pray for the saints, we have to pray for the gospel. We have to pray for the church. 
we have to pray for the faith of our children each and every day. That their identity would be rooted and grounded in Christ instead of the buffet table of identities that they are presented with every single day. Might we go to war on behalf of our children and dress as the divine warrior. We need to pray for one another because if the schemes of the devil are to divide us, then what better way to resist his schemes than to find one another, to look for one another, to see one another, to pray for those that are going through hard times and difficult situations that need their arms held up. Might we go to war on behalf of one another and dress as the divine warrior. And Paul invites the Ephesians to pray corporately for the proclamation of the gospel. And another way of thinking about that is that we would pray for the future saints that might hear and believe. It means we have to learn to pray for our neighbors and coworkers and those in our community that God has sovereignly placed in our lives. It means that maybe the next time you see someone post something divisive online about whatever divisive issue and whatever divisive ideology, and you will see it plenty, instead of letting your blood boil over and your anger rise in your heart, stop and remember they are not your enemy. They're not your enemy. Instead, how about you pray for them? And see what happens in your heart. Because the last thing that they need and you need is another post. They need prayer. And the elders of RPC have committed to praying for conversions each and every Sunday for the rest of the year. To pray that new faith and new life would grow in this church and for us as a church and you, that does mean you, would grow in boldness in proclaiming the gospel to the world around us. We want to lay hold of the very reason for why we exist. It is not the name Rockwall Presbyterian Church. It is the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we want to be a church that knows who our real enemy is. We want to be a church that dresses in the full armor of God so that we might live in the victory of Christ and know the power of the divine warrior because that is a different kind of power altogether. I told you the story of the woman and the child in the deep forest. That's only part of the story because the truth is there's also another kind of power that's at work in the deep forest. It's a power that is uncategorizable and different altogether. When the pastors go out to preach the gospel, they go out to every single village, one by one, one by one, one after the other. And they preach the gospel to very hostile and violent villages. And there was one pastor named Pastor Yesenatum. He was 80 years old. But he had more energy than anybody else because he was known as the dancing pastor. He was known for dancing whenever he stood up to lead the people in worship. And 10 years ago, on my first trip to India, I heard a story about Pastor Yesenatum. Here he was, 80 years old, walking from village to village, preaching the gospel in the sweltering heat. And he got to one village, 
that was so hostile and so resistant to the gospel that they beat Pastor Yesenatum within an inch of his life and they left him for dead. They thought they'd killed him. Pastor Yesenatum was hospitalized for three months. He spent that time in the hospital praying for that village. And when he got out of the hospital, he went right back to that same village and started preaching again. And they were so shocked by the fact that he would even dare to come back. They were so shocked by his boldness that they simply asked him, why are you here? Why would you dare to come back into this village? Pastor Yassanam just simply said, friends, I have to tell you about Jesus. Pastor Yassanam dressed as the divine warrior, holding fast to the gospel of truth in righteous obedience, energized with faith in a readiness that was armed with the word of truth. And it was through him that a new kind of power was introduced into the deep forest and was at work. And that entire village was conquered when every single one of them converted. That's a story that'll give you chills. RPC, might we rise up and dress for battle and join the divine warrior in his mission. The glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.